You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am your host this week, Michael Farmer. I am a instructor, an adjunct instructor of reading and writing at Tallahassee Community College. Joining me today, as always, from somewhere in North Georgia, is Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College. Nathan, are you in Franklin Springs or are you at home? I am in Franklin Springs this fine afternoon. How exciting. Uh, also joining us, as always, or always when there's not a uh, decimal point after the number, is David Grubbs, who's a, who's a graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia, even further displaced than usual. How's it going, David? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Trying not to live like a refugee, like Tom Petty says. Uh, you do your best. You don't have to. Yeah. That's, the, that's the point. Bright side, I am, a, I am recording from... Uh, Dog Mess Johnny Evans' actual office. So, if there's, so. if there's any fans of Dog Mess Johnny Evans, and actually at this point in the show, I will play an example of Dog Mess Johnny Evans ripping it up on the uh, harmonica. You can if there are any fans of him, you can know that David Grubbs is uh, cooler than you. <laughs> Only by association. He is a, one of the best uh, harmonica players I've ever heard, and I'll, I'll say that without um, with, without uh, exaggeration. I, I, I mean that. He, he's very, very good. Anyway, our, uh, our topic today is one we've been promising for some time, and I hope Nate Becker is still listening and he has not given up on us ever doing this topic because he suggested it six months ago, and we've finally gotten to it. Uh, the topic today is dogma and doctrine, but before we get into it, we should ask a question we normally ask, which is, did we get any listener feedback last week? We did get an email from Sam Mulberry. Yay has pondered not only an email but on the CWC, the radio show podcast, uh, whether Michael is the strange man who lives in a crowded room full of Coke cans and cats. Which I am, yes. I, I sent Sam a picture of my office so he could see the squalor in which I live. Uh, the rest of you will just have to imagine it. And he also made a comment about my crassus statement last time. Uh, Sam, I'm glad that you caught that reference. I'll have to admit I had to go back and look up which triumvirate Crassus was part of and which one Lepidus was part of. So uh, as it turns out, you're actually better educated than I am about the late Roman Republic. He is a historian. <laughs> True enough. All right, well, let's get into our topic. Uh, once again, we're talking about dogma and doctrine. And maybe the best way to enter into this discussion is to talk about the place a lot of people first encounter doctrine, which is the creeds. David, you and I both belong to creedal churches. They're both Presbyterian churches. Nathan, on the other hand, belongs to a rigorously anti-creedal church, and he can explain his <laughs> denomination because I don't quite understand it myself. <laughs> but uh, 
I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and, and you did too, David, and that denomination may have creeds, but they kept them a secret from me. So let's talk about the importance <laughs> of creeds. What good are they? Why do we say them? And do they determine doctrine, or are they just reflecting what's already there? Oh, what good are creeds? Um, I guess I can answer this a little bit by, by my experience. I grew up Southern Baptist too, Michael. Um, so when I grew up, if there was anything like a creed for the Baptist church, I didn't know either. Turns out there is something like it. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message, um, which anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting document, particularly with uh, the ways that they describe it, uh, what it is and what it isn't. Anyway, growing up in Southern Baptist church, I didn't learn creeds. I didn't know the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or whatever. Instead, we memorized verses, right? Like the 23rd Psalm or Psalm 119.11 or John 3.16 or uh, the so-called Romans Road. Um, well, of course, the and Romans I remember, Road. Yes. You're, all, you're always I asked remember, to uh, go through it with uh, kids at your school, and I remember getting brave enough to do that and then doing it. <laughs> and then the question you ask at the end, of course, is, now is there any w reason you wouldn't become a Christian? And they all said no, and I said, well, do you want to pray with me now? And they said no, and they were clearly making fun of me. There's <laughs> <laughs> my experience with the Romans Road. Well, uh, you know, if, if that's the way you grow up, I mean, imagine, you know, what it was like the when I was, a, I was, you know, pretty young yet visited a Presbyterian church, and everyone stood up and recited the Apostles' Creed together. And it was absolutely unnerving, because I'd never heard it before. I didn't know the words, and I felt like this, well, one, I felt like an outsider because I couldn't join in, and two, it was kind of creepy. It sounded like the Bible, but it wasn't the Bible. Sure. It, it, was, it was really, really odd. And so being acculturated in a creedless church made me uneasy with creeds. See, I, I first encountered the Apostles' Creed in, I think, the Nicene Creed at an Orthodox church, where everything mm -hmm. is so outrageously alien to the Southern mm -hmm. Baptist that by the time it came around <laughs> to finding it again in a Presbyterian church, it was like, oh, no big deal. Yeah. Well, I, I think in retrospect, my early Christian education was more creedal than it seemed at the time because when I was memorizing verses, what I was actually recalling with them was the doctrinal matrix in which they were meaningful. Uh, John 3.16 was the thesis of gospel sermons, not a snippet of a larger discourse by Jesus. And the Romans Road was uh, basically like, you know, Martin Luther's reading of Romans boiled down to topic sentences, right? Sure. Um, so what I learned was systematic theology, but it was taught as if it was the simple face value reading of a series of important verses. So for me now, um, I like creeds and I, and, uh, I think they're useful because they actually come out, document, and make explicit the matrix of, of theology in which these verses are made meaningful within specific church context. It's kind of like, you know, in grade school arithmetic, when they, when they show you to, they tell you to show your work. Um, to me, a creed is a denomination showing its work. Anyway. <laughs> well, bad. you can get partial credit that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, well, comment real quick, Michael, on my own tradition. Uh, one yes, of defend the... thyself, Nathan. Defend thyself and the denomination. <laughs> Well, non-denomination, which is another story entirely, but uh, <laughs> out of a an urge towards Protestant unification in the early 19th century. The reason that we don't have a creed is because 
the Protestant traditions in America in the early 19th century couldn't agree on what creeds and which confessions would be the markers of fellowship. In other words, you had to recite this to be a member of this or that congregation. Uh, and so the rallying cry, one of the many rallying cries of my tradition, became no creed but Christ. Uh, mm. Functionally, we do, of course, have our own idiosyncratic manners of reading. We do have our own preferred Bible verses. Um, there are license plates. My father-in-law has one that read Acts 2.38, uh, which is the central verse of, of my tradition, I think, sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, as far as why we don't have creeds, uh, it's for the same reason that we call ourselves the Christian church. Uh, it's because we didn't want to, initially now, we didn't want to alienate Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists or Episcopalians. We wanted to be simply Christian. And instead you alienated all of them. Uh, precisely. I mean, history, <laughs> history being what it is, uh, we did take, our, take on our own traditional identity, uh, although we are still fiercely congregationalist, so I would say we're still not a denomination in any meaningful sense. Uh, you're right that, you know, we have our own flavor of Christianity that is undeniable. Let's, yeah, what uh, about you, Mike? Yeah, well, let's, I want to I get back to, to, to the last question I asked, actually, which is, are creed, do creeds determine doctrine, or are they just a reflection of it? Do we believe what we believe because it's in the creeds, or do we say the creeds we say because they reflect what we believe? Well, I'll go ahead and take the first run at this, and David, you can jump in if you'd like. I mean, sure. one of the theories that I find most useful is uh, George Lindbeck's theory in his book, The Nature of Doctrine. And what he says is that one of the more helpful ways to understand not only the creeds, but also the text of Scripture itself, is that it functions as a sort of paradigm or a set of parameters or a vocabulary, if you will, and mm -hmm. what happens is when we recite the creeds and when we read scripture publicly, uh, we are announcing to anyone who would hear uh, that these are the basic boundary markers within which it makes sense to say, I am doing Christian theology. You can have mm -hmm. that disagree with important points of the creed, uh, but what Lindbeck says is, at that point, it becomes nonsense to call that Christian theology. And he says there's room for all kinds of variety inside of the bounds that the creed sets up. Uh, and those are theological difference and those are genuine differences. And we ought to talk about them, but we can still responsibly call them Christian theology. So, you know, he, is, he, he calls it the cultural linguistic model of doctrinal language. And, I, you know, I found over the years that, I mean, it's a helpful model for thinking about what is and what isn't Christian theology, and, you know, when I'm interacting with a Latter-day Saint on one hand, a Calvinist on another hand, and a an agnostic on a third hand, you know, what sort of <laughs> am I having? To, don't, don't snicker at me, David. What sorts of conversations am I having in all these cases? David, what do you got to add to that, since you seem to find me amusing? Uh, it's just you always have three hands, and, and it never makes sense to me. Um, he uses the third one to hit us, if you'll remember from uh, last week's episode. Yeah, that's why we don't see it coming. Well, well David, I'm um, sure I think in threes. Um, so, ba so basically what you're saying is that the creed functions as, as kind of the, you know, the lines drawn on the field that makes play meaningful. 
Yeah, that's that's basically Lindbeck's theory. Okay. Um, I, th- I think that I think that makes some sense. Um, to get back to your to the way you phrased the question, Michael, um, because I did not grow up reciting creeds. Um, I did not encounter I did not encounter them as part of um, as part of catechesis. Um, I, I met them later on in other church contexts in which I had to ask myself, do I believe this? And so for me personally, I would say that when I, when I say the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed along with my congregation, I'm saying it because I believe it. Um, I don't believe it because that's what the Creed says. Though on the other hand, for me, uh, the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed have some weight to them not 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 the same kind of weight as scripture but uh to me they do they do have a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of weight because they've been so generally accepted in kind of the broad swath of christendom right that i i, I feel like I, I need to have some kind of respect some kind of interaction or assent to them um because otherwise uh, i i'm out of fellowship with at least what in my imagination is the vast majority of Christendom, um, which is uh, which is uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I um, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to slide into the next question with with this. Uh, I, I have said before on this podcast and elsewhere that I think a good dividing line for what is heterodox and what is heresy is does it violate the Nicene or Apostles' creeds because these are creeds that have been believed by the vast majority of Christians at all times everywhere, or at least after their composition. So I, I, I've traditionally said that when you when you move outside of the bounds of those creeds, you deny the resurrection, uh, when, you, when you deny the, the life to come, things like that, the, the things that are in those creeds, that's when you cease to become a Christian. And if you, if you don't violate those, those creeds, uh, I say I may disagree with you. I may think you're wrong. I may think what you're saying is dangerous, but I don't think it's heretical. Um, heresy is not a popular word anymore. You don't hear you don't hear a lot of people saying it, and I feel kind of squicky saying it myself. Uh, so, so I, I want to move into talking about about that term. Uh, does it have any value for the 21st century Christians? And if so, how are we going to define heresy? And I've uh, just given my opinion. So, uh, Nathan, I'd like to hear yours. Well, without using the word squicky, uh, <laughs> you know, heresy is one of those handy words to have, you know, if not a dialogue with somebody else, then at the very least your own internal platonic dialogue uh, where you propose a definition and negate it and, you know, do the sort of euthyphro thing because heresy, I'm going to disagree slightly, Michael. I think that people overuse that Heretic. word. Yeah, I know, I know. I think that people overuse that word, and more importantly, I think people use that word in sloppy manners. Uh, and whether they're using it ironically or whether they're using it seriously, uh, mm-hmm. it pays to have a little bit of precision. So, you know, in my own preparation for the show, I mean, the, the working definition that I've come up with, I'm just going to recite the definition and then see what you guys think about it. Uh, I would say that heresy is a confession which, if followed through in the life of the church, would deteriorate the ability of the church to remain the church. And, you know, let me justify that a bit, and then I'll let you guys say what you think. I mean, I think that 
the reason that I, I focus on the life of the church in my definition is because historically heresy has been a boundary marker where the church has said those who confess this are no longer part of what we were doing. All right. Mm -hmm. Athemas at the council are basically saying uh, whatever it is you continue to do, Arius, as Santa Claus whoops up on you, uh, <laughs> whatever you're doing, uh, Nestorius, uh, it's not Christianity anymore. And in fact, if people who once were Christians follow through with that doctrine, the implications will be such that uh, whatever form of life results from it will be something other than a Christian life. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, is that a workable definition, do you think? Or, and, and I think, frankly, that if we run with that, it still stands as a helpful category for 21st century conversations. Well, it's an interesting way to think about it because it's a practical, a practical method. I'm just afraid it leaves it too broad. I, I'm afraid it leaves it open enough because you're talking about something in the future that hasn't happened yet, the, the church no longer being the church, um, where a neo-Calvinist can look at an open theist and say, you're a heretic, because if, if the church were to behave as though open theism is true, it wouldn't be the church anymore. So, so <laughs> labeling something as heresy now depends on, on an uh, unprovable assertion about the future. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I see. I mean, at least the the way the way I heard you, Nathan, is to is if I had if I had to boil you down, it's to say, heresy is the point at which a becomes non a. Yeah, I would say so. Um, which means, which points us back to what is our definition of a? <laughs> well, sure. And, and, you know, Michael, to respond to your objection, and I think it's a valid objection. The reason that I placed it in the realm of practice rather than in written documents uh, mm -hmm. because it seems to me that if you make it a question of the content of the written document primarily uh, then mm -hmm. your definition of heresy is going to become so narrow that there really isn't any heresy that you know you could even imagine or it becomes so broad that anything that disagrees with something that I've read and agree with becomes heresy so in other words, okay. I want to leave room for difference, uh, but still note that there are kinds of differences as well as degrees of difference. But I think right. pointing to the Nicene or Apostles' Creed does that, doesn't it? I mean, there, there's still lots of room for interpretation about lots of lots of things. And I mean, it, that, well, that, I, that's it, one of the problems I have with the Nicene Creed is that it is written to address 4th and 5th century disagreements that I wonder, frankly, I mean, I, I realize that there are a few Dan Brown types in the world who are trying to disagree with the Nicene Creed still, uh, but I would say that, you know, the language of, you know, Hama Usias and Hamoe Usias, although I can agree with it, it doesn't really mean anything for me to agree with it. I agree with it because, hey, sure, you know, it's the Creed, uh, but... <laughs> I have question in my mind. Right. It's not a conversation that you're kind of part of. Um, there was a book that uh, I read a good you know, a, a long time ago, and this is this is from uh, an evangelical um, kind of uh, 
loosely kind of Calvinist perspective. It was entitled Orthodoxy and Heresy by a guy named Robert Bowman Jr. Mm-hmm. And he brought, he he actually talked about it's not just orthodoxy and heresy. He started using he he introduced some other terms like heterodoxy or yeah, uh, a helpful term. <laughs> yeah, just to kind of say that there are some teachings that, while not specifically anti-Christian, are are unhelpful to the function of the church if they take too uh, too great an emphasis in. Uh, you know, in in the body, like like for example, if your church becomes all about angels, <laughs> yeah, you know. So anyway, that maybe some bringing some other words into this and say instead of saying that this is a a two pole axis, um, maybe more of a spectrum. Well, and also, it's I think rather distinctively Protestant that we have to argue about this at all, because if we were Catholic or we were Orthodox, <laughs> and somebody asked what's heresy, we could just say, whatever the Church says it is, which I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to put down any of our Catholic or Orthodox yeah. listeners by any means. Well, well, I think I think you're diminishing to the amount of discussion that the Orthodox and the Catholics have put in historically oh, sure, into sure. defining their own terms. But you the, know, they, the layman they, the layman don't have to don't don't have to sort that out because there's a a, a governing body that makes makes that decision. And, granted, and for, for Protestants, there there really isn't. You can excommunicate someone from the denomination, I suppose. Except I don't know how often that happens. I guess yeah. the evangelicals tried to uh, force the open theists out. About ten years ago, yeah, but that was a professional society. That wasn't yeah. really, a, you know, any sort of bishopric. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's go back in time, Nathan. You're our, you're a biblical scholar, and I know you love it when I begin questions that way. Uh, to what extent <laughs> is it correct to say that the Hebrew and Christian Bibles demand specific theological doctrines? Well, I'm, I'm going to tip my hat on how I'm going to a- answer a later question, but I think that one of the things about the Bible, and, and you know, those of you in the audience who have read some Walter Brueggemann, you're going to hear some Brueggemann emerge here, uh, but I think that the Bible certainly does demand certain things. I mean, for instance, if anyone said the Bible is basically all right with you uh, worshiping Adonai at the temple, but then also worshiping Baal in the high places— uh, I would say that person's not reading the Bible very carefully. Uh, if someone said, you know, the Bible says that uh, Jesus was a human being uh, who died on a cross, stayed dead, uh, but the people, you know, started realizing that his spirit was still among us, even though his body was decomposing. Uh, again, I would say that's not a very careful reading. Uh, so I would say that there are definitely outlines, all right? And I would say that they're mainly narrative outlines. You know, for instance, uh, the abstraction, the oneness of God appears maybe in a verse or two, but this narrative of a God who demands that other gods be thrown out from the presence of true holiness, that's a story that runs all the way through the Old Testament. Likewise, uh, other than a couple formulas, uh, most notably at the end of the book of Matthew, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's not a mm-hmm. distinctively Trinitarian language in the New Testament, but uh, the story of the Father who sends the Son, who promises the Comforter or the Paraclete, 
uh, is definitely a story that runs through. And, of course, Paul talks about the Spirit and the Son and the Father in various places. So it's one of those things where, uh, and again, I'm, I'm borrowing from my favorite theologians. That's, you know, I'm, I'm not trained enough in theology really to do too much original speculative work here. But John Howard Yoder uh, talks about Christian theology and specifically systematic theology as those tools that the church has come to use to make sense of the text of Scripture. And that definition makes a good deal of sense to me. So, you know, uh, the Scriptures in their own right are, you know, as I've written before on the blog and as I've said on the podcast, they are places where the unexpected happens. And one of the things that the Scriptures can do, as First Timothy, no, Second Timothy, pardon me, tells us, uh, is that they can correct, they can instruct, uh, mm. they can build up. And one of the reasons that they can still do that, even though we've got 2,000 years of creeds and confessions in our background, is that as literary text, inspired, God-breathed literary text, they still have the power to reveal something new to us. Uh, so I would say that the scriptures themselves don't have a whole lot of creedal function, but they provide the context within which creeds make sense. So, so you would you would you would say that that uh, based on this view that a creed is kind of like a sentence outline, or or uh, or maybe the an an outline of of narrative themes for which we still need the story. I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, and that's one of the things that I appreciate most about Catholic and Orthodox traditions is that. Unfortunately, unlike a lot of churches in my own tradition who claim that the Bible is our creed, uh, Catholic and Orthodox Church still read long passages of Scripture in every service. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I come to Christian church congregations where the preacher will mention a verse of Scripture and then preach for 25 minutes about whatever comes to mind. Right. Um, I, I, I did think one thing that, uh, well, it, it actually... Um, the bulk of scripture is narrative. I, I think you are right on, you know, uh, on the emphasis on narrative, Nathan. Um, but I think one of the reasons why a lot of, uh, particularly reform types, just absolutely adore the, epi- the 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 epistolary literature of the New Testament, is because Peria is that it, Paul will occasionally come out and say something nice, handy, and propositional. Well, David, you have pushed us forward a question, um, so let's go ahead and discuss this. What we're talking about here is a division some people have proposed between Paul and Jesus, being that the, the Gospels are primarily narrative theology and that the Pauline epistles in particular are primarily propositional theology. Uh, do either of you find any value to that distinction? Too much has been made of this in some circles and not enough in others. Uh, I will say that a lot of the emergent literature I have read uh, has, I think, just made an utter fiction of the strong division between Paul and Jesus. Uh, I think that if you read both of them in the context that N.T. Wright suggests in his magisterial work, uh, the New Testament and the, no, yes, the New Testament and the people of God, there we go, Uh, That book really, I think, changed the way that I thought about Jesus and Paul in that they are, in a sense, middle terms 
historically between Second Temple Judaisms on one hand and patristic theology on the other. So in other words, if you read both of those figures, Jesus as presented in the canonical Gospels and the epistles of Paul in the context of you know, post-Ezra Judaism on one hand and post-apostolic Christianity on the other, they both make up parts of really a very coherent picture. There's really not at nearly as much conflict as people make of it. Now, I will say that one of the things that bugs me is people treating the Gospels as if they are chronologically prior to the letters of Paul. Yeah. Uh, the fact of the matter is that just about every respectable scholar that you will find, and I realize respectable scholar in some people's minds is an immediate red flag, but... <laughs> I mean, even conservative scholars. We're not, we're not talking about, about right. ju just liberal scholars. The conservative scholars believe the, many of the epistles predate the Gospels. Yes, I, I would say most of the epistles predate the Gospels. Yeah, yes. For that reason, you know, I think that when, well, I, I don't think this. I know that when I teach the canonical Gospels in Sunday school and adult Bible studies and those sorts of contexts, I almost always tell the class that more than likely the communities that would have been receiving these written documents narrating the life and the teachings of Jesus would have already had something resembling, at the very least, a Pauline scheme of salvation already there. Mm -hmm. This would have been a narrative that they would have already been reading in the context of salvation by grace through faith for the sake of good works uh, to, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing and badly remembering Ephesians there. Uh, but, you know, in other words, to treat the gospels as if they are the pure, pristine hippie Jesus. And then Paul comes along and he's the Texas Southern Baptist state Senator who's trying to keep it all under wraps. <laughs> No offense to any Texas state representative, Southern Baptists, of course. Well, some of them. It, it, it is good to point out that, that what we are talking about uh, here is the relationship between these, between these texts. Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously Jesus was chronologically prior, but I think we, it, is, it is absolutely important for us to remember that while, the, while Jesus, the person, was chronologically prior to St. Paul, that St. Paul is literarily prior to the accounts that we have of Jesus. Right. So, so yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about another division we sometimes see, which is um, between systematic theology and biblical theology. Those are, at least in the Reformed tradition, two of the three classic branches of uh, theology. The third one, if anybody's interested, is apologetics. And since we did an entire episode on that, I'm leaving it out for now. But let's talk about that division between systematic and biblical theology. David, can you explain the difference and, and talk for a minute about how it, uh, it affects a person's view of the importance of doctrine? Uh, I mean, we've, we've already kind of been uh, dancing around these distinctions, right? Um, and this was also a hot topic at Southeastern, um, the Bible college I went to, uh, when I was there because, uh, we had, uh, we had some professors who were actually, uh, kind of butting heads about this. Um, basically, and, you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see, uh, if, you know, what, what Nathan says about this. Um, but my understanding is basically systematic theology attempts to assemble all of scripture's assertions about theological issues into a coherent structure. While biblical theology works book by book 
examining specific theological emphases and interests of specific biblical authors. So you can speak of Matthew's Jesus in contrast to Mark's or all of the synoptics and in contrast to John. Um, now, personally, the way I would relate the two, um, because I take a particular stance on, on biblical inspiration that emphasizes the unity of all of them together, um, my uh, I, I tend to think of biblical theology as the preliminary step towards systematic theology, but then that developing systematic theology is a continuing corrective back on the biblical theology. Um, because I don't believe in irresolvable contradictions between biblical texts. If I encounter anomalies, uh, then I try to reconcile it with my systematic theology. That's that's right. my knee jerk. Um, though every you know, sometimes that reconciliation will involve modification of my developing system. So, do you guys think it's fair to suggest that biblical inerrantists, in, inerrant, I don't know how to say that word, inerrantists like uh, Grubbs and like me are going to be more in favor of systematic theology? Is that is that a fair assertion? I mean, obviously there are. Um, I hate to use such a facile word, but there are liberal systematic theologies, and one of the most famous is is, is the one Paul Tillich did. But uh, is is it fair to say that conservatives and inerrantists tend to be drawn towards systematic theology? Yeah, I think when you make the assertion that you know Scripture does not contain any inherent contradictions, you are, I mean, that claim itself is a claim about Scripture globally. I would right. agree with that, David. Oh yeah, I, I I assert that, but I I am aware that it's it's also leading me to to make particular kind of moves more naturally than I might not have had it if I didn't have that assumption. For sure, I I would agree. I mean, on a philosophical level, with what David said, that biblical theology itself presumes a sort of a kind of system before you can ever get started with that enterprise. And right. The systematic assumption that it makes is that there is a plurality in the authoritative revelation of God. And, you know, that, that does happen to be a position that I take. Uh, you know, I realize in that I differ from our other two humanists here. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, again, I always go back to my Sunday school lessons, I realize, when we talk Bible. Uh, but one of the things that, one of the images that I've put forth uh, in order to teach this concept is the idea that when we look at four different portraits, uh, of Abraham Lincoln, and I've actually got a PowerPoint that I do whenever I teach the canonical Gospels. Uh, mm -hmm. All four of the portraits are going to emphasize different things. One of the four portraits I've got is actually a sort of almost Van Gogh-looking impression, no, expressionist, pardon me, uh, portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, when I show these four, I say, all right, you know, what if a person said, okay, what we need to do is uh, reconcile the line drawing Lincoln sitting on a horse with a sword at his side with <laughs> the spectrum reading a book with the Van Gogh looking Abraham Lincoln with pink snakes floating out of his hair uh, you know I mean anyone who has an appreciation for portraiture would say well don't do that these are four different works of art mm -hmm. uh, now you know I realize that that is a position that has its weaknesses, you know, one of them being that it really, really opens up uh, the possibilities for interpretation in ways that some people think are dangerous. Uh, my theological warrant for 
reading the Bible such, uh, is that the church historically rejected the diatessaron of Tatian uh, in favor of four distinctive gospels. And for that reason, I do tend to approach things, you know, from what Michael, Michael described accurately, I think, as biblical theology. Now that said, and then I'll throw it back to you guys, I think that in order to do biblical theology, there has to be a prior systematic set of assumptions in place. I also think that a lot of people are pretending to do biblical theology, uh, but then they'll say that the Gospels are more important than Ephesians. And once you've done that, you've made a systematic assertion. Mm -hmm. So I think that nobody does purely biblical theology. I think that all theologies, once you get out of a descriptive mode and once you start doing actual theology for the Christian church, uh, you are by necessity, by definition, doing systematic theology. All right, I'll be quiet for a second. What do you guys think? No, that makes sense to me, and I certainly, I certainly don't want to in any way jettison biblical theology. Like I said, the, the Reformed Church at least acknowledges both of those as important, <laughs> maybe equally important, branches of theology. So I think you're probably going to get a dialectic, and the fact that you don't get very many professors who do both suggests that Bible and theology departments at Christian schools are going to be dialectical as well, and there's going to be a push and pull. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, you know, I'm an existentialist. I, I appreciate that. Right. I, if, if I was going to take uh, Nathan's, uh, Nathan's Lincoln illustration, um, which I, I'm very glad you didn't talk about elephants and a bunch of blind men personally. I was, uh, I was about to yell at you if you had. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I hate that illustration, listeners. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, because the you know the elephant is not some kind of you know thinking entity that's attempting to reveal itself to the blind men, um, and that is as at least as one. You know. Yeah, as far the parable assumes that everyone except the person telling the parable is blind. <laughs> Precisely. Um, but back to right? <laughs> yeah. Well, back to the Lincoln portraits. Um, you know. As a you know, as as one who's looking more for uh, for harmony that appreciates difference, um, I'm going to look at those portraits and say, okay, Van Gogh's has pink snakes coming out of Lincoln's head. None of the others talk about pink snakes, so I'm going to have to produce a reading of pink snakes that um, that asserts that they're not actually pink snakes because those actual pink snakes. Uh, you know, because the, because the other three p pictures don't have literal pink snakes growing out of his head, so I'm, I'm going to come up with a reading of the pink snakes that doesn't contradict the other portraits, but maybe okay. fleshes out something which the other portraits do not also capture. Uh, but you know, I'm still operating within the metaphor there. I mean, you know, think sure. about the Gospels and then mutatis mutandis. Oh, yeah, and I mean, it is an analogy, and every analogy breaks down at some point, so I'm not saying that's a, a perfect correspondence, I'm saying it's a teaching tool that I use. That's much more fun than talking about elephants. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on, and I think this is an interesting question. I, I mean, the other ones have been incredibly boring, so let's move on to an interesting <laughs> one. Uh, 21st century America is, I think, I think we can probably agree, is largely post-denominational. Uh, so I, I've seen a move toward that mindset even even since my childhood, which was not terribly long ago. 
uh, Catholicism used to be really be anathema for a certain breed of Protestant, but I think we're seeing less and less of that mindset. Um, do you think that's a healthy thing? Should we just abolish denominations like Nathan's denomination did and just call ourselves Christians? Would you quit calling us a denomination? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, uh, is this directed at me? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. That's yes. Okay. Okay. Um, now, my well, I guess my, my answer to that last question is, should we just abolish them? I say absolutely not. Um, because every denomination, even the non-denominations, um, ha- not only have doctrinal distinctives, which the callow regard as nitpicky, but they also make a series of pragmatic choices that govern basic church polity. Mm-hmm. Right? And who is in charge of what and on what basis and how do decisions get made and who do we baptize and how, which, of course, that's doctrinal because it's also practical because somebody's got to get wet somehow. And ditto the Lord's table. How often do you do it? Who ta- you know, to whom and in what form? I mean, once you've answered these questions, congratulations. You've just made what I would call your own denomination, and you've divided the church. And as much as other Christians who differ with your choices – are now going to opt to go somewhere else. Take that, right? Nathan. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Nathan because I think, Na- I mean, Nathan's, uh, whatever whatever you call uh, the Stone Campbell tradition, um, and, I, and I won't, uh, you know, I won't assert that they're denomination, a denomination in, in you know, in their face, um, but the Stone Campbell tradition does make pragmatic calls about how the church runs that are in exclusion to other pragmatic calls, which once you do that, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, you're, ma- you're making it impossible for people to, in conscience, all go to the same church. Right. And I mean, to clarify, I mean, the denomination point, of course, I, I was making an over-the-top joke earlier. Uh, <laughs> oh, good, I, I can stop crying. Distinction. I try to be respectful, though, because my grandmother was was Church of Christ. So, yeah, you know, we do make a distinction between a tradition more generally and a denomination more particularly in that Mm -hmm. a denomination has some sort of super congregational authority uh, that can govern the faith and practice of the congregations. Uh, In other words, you know. In, in my tradition, and I think this is honestly a pretty good distinction, it would make no sense to talk about a congregationalist denomination. Right. Because by definition, it is a federation rather than a than a centrally governed denomination. Now, of course, the Disciples of Christ uh, have made the move towards appointing regional ministers and directors and those sorts of things. So they really have become denominational by that by that definition so I, I think that we definitely have distinctions and i definitely think that we have our own traditions i would mm-hmm. say that we are non-denominational by that definition of denomination now I, I will say michael that this is one of the big anxieties within my own tradition uh, mm-hmm. that for 200 years we've been saying get away from these denominations all of a sudden in the 21st century and late 20th really uh, these mega churches rise up where it's really, and I'm gonna, that's fine. Post some comments on our blog, people. If you get mad at me, no one has. Yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have gotten these 
gigantic individual congregations that seem to be governed by a personality. Yes. In a tradition. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons why I would say uh, we're going to stay non-denominational, but I would say that there still ought to be distinctives of tradition. And here's mm-hmm. so that you have some sort of basis, some sort of means of evaluation, so that, say, for instance, if there's a preacher in some American city, we'll pick Seattle at random, of course, uh, who has satellite churches in a very earth orbit <laughs> sense, uh, where his faith being piped into buildings on the coast, you have some sort of basis for saying, okay, there's something wrong with that, and here's what it is. I, I think you're right, Nathan. I think for a little bit with using the denomination language, we're kind of talking past each other. When I say denomination, I use it simply as a, as an as a nominal form of of the verb denominate, which is simply to name or to designate something. Yeah. And That's when right. I talk when I talk about your tradition, when I say the churches of Christ, um, I mean by that churches that do that do and say a particular set of things. I'm not talking about would you suggest then ecclesiastical superstructures. And you know, Nathan, I would never I would never dream of insulting the group of Christians to which Weird Al Yankovic belongs. I thought he was Jewish. No, no, he's Church of Christ. Oh good. Well, I knew Kirk Cameron was one of ours, but I didn't know about Weird Al. Neat. <laughs> David yeah. has just converted. <laughs> I, no, no, no. I, we now have Kirk Cameron, Weird Al, and Grover Cleveland. Those are our three famous people. Grover Cleveland, man, <laughs> this just gets better and better. Um, I will say one thing. Uh, I, I uh, Michael, um, you, you, you talked about uh, Catholicism, and uh, it was anathema to Protestants, and then we see less and less of that. Um, the current Pope is, and my favorite. A, a vast improvement. He's probably my favorite pope ever. Really? Because by golly, yes, because by golly, he is Catholic. Give me honest antagonism, antagonism any day. You know? Um, I, I, I like him for that reason. I don't want popes trying to pretend that they're cool with Protestantism when if, when, which, when you break down, you know, actual ecclesiastical dogma, they still aren't. Well, I don't. I, mean, I don't want those. John John Paul II didn't say he didn't have any problems with Protestants. He just said we were Christians too. Oh, I know, I know, <laughs> and he's just asserting Vatican II on that, which 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 Benedict is also bound by. But Benedict is not. He's he's not pretending that saying we're Christians too doesn't also mean that we aren't sundered brethren who are who uh, who are in some kind of a second class uh, existence. Um, I'm, I'm anyway. not sure the reason most people dislike Benedict has to do with his opinion on Protestants, though. Well, okay. He does He does look kind of surly. <laughs> he looks like but, the Emperor on Star Wars. He does kind of, which is probably another reason why I like him. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. He, he To me, he looks like the Pope ought to look, and I'm like... You know, Benedict, I can I can disagree with you, and you will disagree with me to my face, and I respect that. Thank you. And now then, burn me because I'm Ridley. And then, or Latimer. David, join me, and I will complete your training. <laughs> <laughs> and I say no when I go up to Geneva and get trained in the swamp by Yoda Calvin. <laughs> anyway. 
enough of that. <laughs> All right, well, while we're talking about the post-denominational world we're apparently moving toward, although we don't think that's a good idea, <laughs> we should say <laughs> that this episode is built, at least to some extent, on the premise that dogma has become a bad word in Christian circles. That That's the question Nate Becker asked when he sent us this show idea, and I wanted to finally get around to it here in the, in the final question. So, I mean, the reason we're even talking about dogma is because there are people out there who have gotten the impression that dogma is a bad thing, or because there are people out there who have gotten the impression that there are people out there who have gotten the impression <laughs> that dogma is a bad thing. So have have either of you noticed one of those two attitudes? Do, do you do you feel like the, the Christian world has decided? Well, one of the things about dogma is that you know, it's got that M-A suffix on it, so it's a nominalization of a verb, all right? So uh, it has to do with belief, it has to do with seeming, it has to do with these things that are passed down. And one of the criticisms of it, Michael, is that it's often passed down without reflection. And to that extent, I would say that I am equally an enemy of dogma. In other words, I think that, you know, Michael, I think you've rubbed off on me enough that I want people to actually have a faith that is an own most faith, to use Heidegger's terms. In other words, something that someone can say, you know, I have contemplated what the universe is like if I am not faithful to this God, and now I am taking responsibility, taking a stand on my being, and being faithful to this God. Now, that said... Mm -hmm the other side of the anti-dogma bias uh, is this idea that any sort of fixed teaching, any sort of boundary line that we talked about earlier in the episode uh, is necessarily also going to be unreflective. And I think, frankly, that that is just a naive view philosophically. I think that when it comes to the outworkings of the deepest convictions, there can be genuine difference there should be genuine difference, and we should embrace genuine difference. But I think that when it comes to those axiomatic, central things like Christ died to save us from our sins, uh, that's not, not something that can be reasoned into or out of. That is a matter of conversion. Uh, and I think that goes both ways. I think someone can convert from a childhood experience of a universe that is saved by Christ into an experience of a universe more like Bart Ehrman's universe where, you know, things are unjust, but there's nothing you can do about it, so you might as well watch the UNC game on TV. And drink your microbrew. <laughs> and drink your <laughs> Pardon me, I left that part out. That's for you, Wayne Peacock. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that, you know, when it comes to the central creedal things that are taught, the dogmas, uh, I think that people are in error when they think that those things are subject to the same kinds of reasoned investigation that more complex theological articulations of those realities are. Uh, I think that, frankly, people who are anti-dogma are underplaying the importance of and the centrality of those existential conversion moments, not only in the life of Christians, but in the life of those who used to be Christians, uh, in the life of those who used to be capitalists but who have become socialists, uh, in the lives of those who uh, used to be optimistic but have become pessimistic. You know, those central, not necessarily 
intellectual because I think of intellectual as making order of convictions. Uh, but those central existential realities, I, I, I might be skirting close to a heretical romanticism here, but I really do think that they are at the core of being in the way that articulated theologies are not. Uh, David, am I am I missing important realities here? Uh, no, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. Um, I, I'm just well. I, I think every once in a while I, uh, I'm 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 not thinking in kind of the same in the, in, in kind of the same terms because a lot of times my my thought through this is you know it's just kind of you know dumb good old boy pragmatism. Um, but I'm just going to go ahead and accuse those of. Uh, you know the 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 people who who don't agree who who think dogma is a bad word of uh, unconscious bad faith. Wait, um, now are you talking? Hang on a second, because uh, there's an existentialist in the room. Are you talking about Sartre and bad faith, or something else? Oh, um, of of basically uh, of. Uh, of asserting that they're for something that, or that they're against something that, in fact, they then turn back around and try to, you know, try to do themselves. So not exactly. So that, okay. So not not exactly. You threw um, me. You threw me and, off, David. I don't expect to hear existentialist buzzwords coming out of your mouth. Yeah. If they if they ever sound like existentialist buzzwords, they probably that was probably accidental. Um, and what what I mean by that is uh, and. Very often, we there would be conversations about this at Southeastern Bible College, and people would they would decry some kind of divi- you know the divi- the divisiveness of theological issue X, or even just the general divisiveness of denominations, and just say, hey, why can't we all just get along and do this one thing, which is itself a theological stance on that issue, which I assume to be the commonsensical yeah. stance. Right. And, and it, you know, so they weren't actually against, you know, that in, in, in their actions, they aren't actually against someone taking a stance on that issue. It's just uh, it's just, you know, the, not not the one that they thought was sensible. So why can't we all just get together in a huge arena and sensibly, you know, sing praise songs together and just clap? Because that's real worship. Well, this is but the vibe those... I get sometimes from the uh, the emergent church. Let's let's get rid of all yeah. doctrine and divisions, except oh, by the way, if you don't agree with me, you know you're in this group over here. Right, and that and that is a series of 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 doctrinal decisions in itself. So you know, uh, anyway, uh, if if I if I can go back to something, I like creeds because at least they're honest. I can disagree with a creed. A creed comes out and says, "Hey, this is what I am," you know. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't trust. I don't trust the people who tell me they don't have doctrine when their their behavior tells me that they do. Either you know, either they're being dishonest or they just honestly haven't thought enough about it themselves. Right. Well, denying the doctrine seems as nonsensical to me as denying the fact that it is a story. I mean, right. we talked earlier about narrative versus propositional truth, and, and it seems to me that to deny one, to, to put 100% of the emphasis on the other is, e- either way would be, uh, would be ridiculous and, and, and uh, in bad faith. Same tradition. 
<laughs> what, what are you saying, Nathan? I said, let me make a systematic claim here. The propositions and the narratives are part of the same intellectual tradition. Yeah. But anyway, David, if I could piggyback off of what you just said, I think that you're right that, you know, people try to say, let's get rid of all these doctrinal distinctives. And what I think is happening there is that they want to be Derrida disciples up to a point, but they don't have the courage to run all the way through it. <laughs> they also, uh, let's get rid of all these binaries that say, uh, if you believe in the bodily resurrection you're in, if you don't, you're out. Uh, but they don't have the courage to then say, okay, let's also dispel the binary of those who have gotten rid of binaries and those who are still holding on to them. <laughs> or, if, or if you really want to have a good time, uh, have, them, have them look at the binary of taking care of the poor versus not taking care of the poor. Because, well, that, that's mm -hmm. a different question entirely, but one of the reasons why I respect Derrida, but I don't respect a lot of Derridaeans, is at least he had the courage to say, if you run all the way through this, you end up suspended in the air with nothing to stand on. These folks still want to have some kind of ground for common Christianity. Uh, they just want to dispel the other guy's binaries while keeping their own. Right. Right. And, and and that's that's what I mean unexistentially uh, un about bad faith. There's still an assertion. I mean, if you walked up to him and say, "Well, I'm a Christian, and I believe that uh, that Jesus saves sinners, and by Jesus I mean a particular purple horse which I once owned, and by saves I means gives popsicles to." <laughs> I'm a Christian, by which and, I mean that there is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Well. Uh, yeah, I hope you didn't mean that when you I said it, because otherwise that. you just converted. Okay. It's, it's a good yeah. thing. It's a good thing we don't have an engineer who actually makes what we say into drops to be played back at later times. <laughs> it's a good thing we're not a real radio show. No doubt. But at any rate, David, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're absolutely right that that bad faith deconstructionism is at the heart of the modern rejection of dogma. And like I said, I mean, if you want to be Derrida, go all the way. Be Derrida. Uh, mm -hmm. don't then acknowledge at least that you're still operating within a philosophical system built on those binaries. Whether you buy mm -hmm. binaries or whether you like yours, we're still dealing with binaries. And by the way, I'm, I'm one of those people who, you know, I still think that a coherent philosophical enterprise is going to rely on some kind of binaries. I happen to think that the binaries are going to be provisional binaries following John Milbank's theology. Uh, but I do think that the dispelling of binaries is going to lead you into what Derrida eventually discovers as utter groundlessness. Mm -hmm. Well, that's our show on doctrine and dogma. Nate Becker, I hope it's what you were looking for. If you, some other listener, wants to send us in a show idea, we do take them seriously. I think we've done at least some of the shows people have sent us the ones we're capable of <laughs> uh david what are we talking about next week uh next week we start our uh, music trilogy our much anticipated music trilogy at least much anticipated by me and uh, i know nathan because he's already given us his outline um kidding next week's episode is going to be on uh, music in the church uh, specifically music uh, music and worship, music and liturgy, uh, hymns, and uh, all that sort of thing. David's so, going uh, to break out uh, the I'm old acoustic guitar. 
no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> Though I'm in for some acapella harmonizing if Nate if is. Yeah. The barbershop church music. Except we lack <laughs> a bass. All right, well, uh, that's next week. Between now and then, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org, and you can read our blog or visit our podcast site from there. If you'd like to send us an email, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, and, uh, of course, you can send us show ideas. You can send us show feedback. You can tell us we're a bunch of idiots and you're canceling your subscription. We'd love to hear from you either way. <laughs> Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.